not fair, of course, to stack up every film against the full canon of its maker, but there certainly doesn't feel much of substance here. No level of thematic or narrative differentiation that would stake a grander claim to its reason for being. Fantastic blurb. Good stuff, Chris Cody, grabbing that from Brent Simon of AV Club. He's talking about The Killer. That's right. It's our featured review here in Cinephile. It's coming to Netflix November 10th. It's limited release right now in theaters, so I was able to watch that. So um, our old slash wildcard, he's not old, he's a great guy, Nat Sagaloff. He's got a new book out. It's called Say Hello to My Little Friend, 50 Years of Scarface. I encourage everyone to check out the book, and you'll love the interview with Nat. He talks about how Pacino got the voice, the accent for Tony Montana, Stephen Bauer's influence, Oliver Stone's script, why is Brian De Palma as a director so polarizing, Michelle Pfeiffer and her you know, thoughts on the film so many years later. So you'll really enjoy that 40 years later of Scarface. We begin, though, with the major news, and not that it's Halloween, and not that Chris Cody is dressed as a fork in the road, which Dan Lepitard was just offended as I watched the clip today on Instagram, his entire crew. And boy, ignoring the email on Slack about, you know, <laughs> the best costume. I think Lucy wins in a route, by the way, just because, yes. you know, Mike cares. Two guys didn't give a crap. Although your dad's is pretty good. I look forward to, we have to plug Greg Cody's new book. It sounds fantastic. It's about, go ahead, plug it. Lions and it's, then Ron McGill. It's, a, zoo. it's about this lion that was at Zoo Miami that Ron, it's basically the story of Ron McGill through this lion that it like didn't have a chance at making it, but with all the work by the zoo and yeah, I haven't read the book yet, so I don't know the details, but yeah, it's a story about a lion at a zoo, but it's really the story of Ron McGill told through the story of this lion. That's pretty cool, man. I do look out for it. And as Greg Kelly said, pre-sales have been excellent. So that's why I like to hear if I'm somebody writing a book. Um, yeah. Before we get to me recapping my week and talking about the killer and Nat Segaloff, most important news is this. Chris Cody is somebody who does not like to let me down in important situations. There's times mm -hmm. he has said, I'm going to watch this movie. He doesn't watch it afterwards. He feels bad about it. He beats himself up, but then he moves on with his life. But this time he came through. He told me, he's like, I'm going to watch Killers of Flowerwood. He told all of you he was going to do that. And by the way, this does drive a stake through my heart. 61% drop at the box office, which is not good news. Killers of Flowerwood only grossed $9 million this past weekend. But screw it. It's getting rave reviews. Audiences are loving it. Global audience is still good. And Apple did not make this for the money. Apple makes a billion dollars every day. They couldn't give crap. $200 million, fine. Let's just win a bunch of Oscars, get some great buzz. And Chris Cody spent three and a half hours watching Killers of the Flower Moon. And to people who are texting me going like, I don't know, I go, all I need to tell you is this. Cody's a great guy, right? Yeah. You think you might share your sensibilities more with him, right? Average Joe, he loved it. Give us your review. I loved it, man. It's hard. And, and when I, I'm a big guy, when a movie's hyped up to me, I usually poke holes in it. I'm like, God, ah, it's good, but, and I can't, there's no buts here. It was a great film. I, I didn't look at my watch. I looked at my phone maybe late in the movie once, but if I can get to the third hour and I haven't even looked at my phone yet, that's a good yeah. movie. Just so many scenes in this movie. I mean, you already did the full breakdown of the movie, so I really just want to highlight some scenes. Obviously, the butt slapping scene. You touched on that. Did you touch on that, or did we not spoil that? We haven't spoiled anything yet. So this has now been two weeks to Chris's point. So I feel like we can start talking with individual scenes. Uh, Cody and I were going back and forth. He said, "Hey, great film." And he, as you said, you go. It was a lot of hype. Lily Glass's performance is hyped up a lot, but she delivered. And then I wrote back to you, which I've been writing back to everybody after they see it. I say, "What was in the shots?" Insulin, which I said is the best scene of the year between Leo and Italy. But then I said the second best scene of the year is when De Niro spanks Leo. I learned, by the way, after this, that De Niro wore padding for that. Did you see this? <laughs> that he like was like, they actually spanked him, so it wasn't fake, so he had to put well, butt, he put, wore butt pads. But De Niro wouldn't be wearing butt pads. Leo must have been. Leo's going to get spanked. No, that's what I meant. That uh, Did I say De Niro, my yeah, bad? De Niro wore butt pads. Why would he be wearing them? He, he's doing the spank. DiCaprio. <laughs> DiCaprio is what I meant. If I'm going to poke holes, because I, I really did love it, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The, the one thing that I will say negative, 
Plemons. What's this guy's name? Yeah, Jesse Plemons. Yeah, he plays the FBI agent, Tom White. I feel like they could have casted that a little better. I didn't really, that was like, if I'm poking a hole, I just felt like it could have been an older, gruffer guy. I don't know. I just yeah. felt like that casting was a little, and I love Plemons in other stuff, but that, yeah. that's a whole I would find. Lily Gladstone is going to win the Oscar. Emma Stone, the favorite right now for poor things for best actress, but I'm with you. Hopefully Lily Gladstone can beat her. We're four months till the Oscars, if it happens. Go ahead. Now, we talked before about uh, Leo's accent and whether it was going to yeah. be a little too heavy handed, but it, it was not. Leo was great. Best actor nomination coming up for Leo. The, 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 the ending scene. Oh, see, I don't see. I don't want I don't know how to do this. Because there's people who have not seen it. We've already we've already given away the spanking scene. That's enough. It was just interesting the way because at the end of a movie, I'm not going to spoil anything. At the end of a movie, yeah. there's kind of like, all right, you've seen this story. Now, let's tell you kind of what happens next. It's kind of like a, a post script. Probably happens. Correct. Very and I, I thought the way they did that was odd. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was ingenious. You went the other way. I thought you were going to say that I was just, amazing. I was just like, all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, there's this cameo. This is weird. This is a little. And then, like, the, the guy who, are we allowed to say that we see? Uh, Never mind. I'll bleep it out. I'll bleep it out. Yeah, yeah. But overall, man, like, I'm never going to do this as well as you do. I love the movie. And I think that Marty, I didn't think it needed to be edited down too much. Because, like, when you think, when you I, see a three and a half hour movie, you think, but I'm thinking back at scenes, and I and they were all great. Like, I'm thinking yeah. back. What was an interesting one? And this doesn't really give away any parts of the movie, so I can talk about it. There's one scene where it's early on in Leo and Lily's relationship, and they're sitting at a table, and it's raining right. out. And she's yeah. just like, let's just sit here. Yeah. Like, what was, go so, like, what was going on there? So glad you mentioned that. So the second time I saw the movie, again, the first time I saw it was October 13th at the critic screening. For those who haven't listened to the previous episode, please listen to it. Killers of the Flower Moon, the formal review I did a couple weeks ago. But then last week, I neglected to mention the film opened October 20th. So, of course, I got the kids to school and I saw the Friday 9 a.m. show. So it was it was such a cool experience to be able to say opening day, but I've already seen it. Like, what you, how have you already seen it? I'm like, oh, it's opening day today. I'm going to go see it for the second time <laughs> and not screening. But to your point, had not Gave, you know, got, used three bathroom breaks to get did at the critic screening. So I had not gone to the bathroom prior to the screening, so I was kind of rushing in. That was a disaster. I left my wallet in the car, and I was freaking out because my buddy LaBoy had said to me, he goes, hey, how about Marty's intro? I go, what are you talking about? He goes, at the start of the movie. And I, and I said, no, I, I was at the critic screening. The movie just starts. He goes, oh, if you go see it, he does like a minute thing, like, thank you for coming to see the film. I go, okay, I'm basically paying Thirteen fifty, just to see this one minute thing, which I'm like, you know, I, I, it's probably like Nicole Kidman walking the movies, whatever. I'm panicking. I'm like, where the? F I can't put my wallet. My crap. I put my wallet at home. I'm like, do you, do you take Apple Pay? And I've worked in a movie theater, so I know they're not doing anything. There's four ushers just gabbing. Out. Can someone help me, please? <laughs> you, how do I get Apple? I, I, it's already nine fifteen. The movie's at nine o'clock. I'm already missed this. Like God, like okay, Apple Pay. Yes, you Apple Pay. I'm like double click. I'm, okay. <laughs> so I did not go to the bathroom prior to the way. I go in there. It was the last trailer, fantastic, some nonsense I'm never going to watch. And then you see Marty pop up. He's amazing. He's like, hello, thank you for coming to see my film here on the big screen. It's a film I'm very passionate about. One minute thing, but I'm like, that was worth it for the 1350. But to your point, I'd not gone to the bathroom yet. But now when you see it a second time, I go, okay, I can be strategic about the bathroom break. You know what I do the bathroom break? Write the scene you're talking about. <laughs> Let's just in the rain. I go, you know what? I can take three minutes right now to go pee. Right. It's, it's just kind of like she's like, he tries to go for the liquor and she like puts the hand on the arm of like, we need to sit here. We just need to sit. Yeah, if we want to cut a scene, I'm like, that's the one I could have cut. I'm like, I need to go. EJ Raddick, my buddy at HL Network, most ridiculous criticism me, goes, the film could have been cut a couple of minutes. And I go, what do you mean? Like, are you just saying that as an expression? He goes, no, two minutes. I go, say this again. This film is three hours and 26 minutes. You're telling me if they cut two minutes, it would have been better. I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, of course you could cut two minutes if you had to, but I'm with you. I think the pacing is fantastic. Yeah. That's the big 
Yeah, people go, no, like it really moved for a three and a half hour movie. And I, I do feel like, uh, see, and, and if, if this is saying too much, we can take it out in post. Um, I felt like uh, Leo convincing her that he wasn't in it for the money was kind of like she got very quickly to like, all right, I like this guy. I believe him. And I felt yeah. like there could have been more because I feel like because all these women were like, everyone wants our money. I don't trust Correct. any guy. And Leo yeah. kind of breaks that seal and like gets through to her of like hey i'm not about the money i i love you and so i just thought that was if i'm if i'm critiquing i thought they could have actually drawn out that part a little more and like give me more on like Longer. him yeah. working to like get her trust okay that's fair because i think she knows that he loves money like he makes that clear but he also loves her which i think again it's i think a great balance throughout the movie like yeah. you believe him the entire time it's like you yeah. know he wants money but you believe that he actually loves her yeah, it's, it's amazing to think about. And now that you've seen it, you can laugh about the scene, which I've now seen twice. It's the biggest laugh of the movie is when the character of, uh, I forget his real name, no, Kelsey something, Kelsey Morrison, he plays Sally Bugs in The Irishman. If you listen to the interview we did with Ellen Lewis, casting director, I said, I'm so happy to see him. Both times, biggest laugh of the movie is when the guy says, it sounds like you're planning to adopt your children and then murder them. Yeah. And he says, what if it's not legal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is demented movie but it's absolutely brilliant and uh i'm glad you saw it man that's awesome i loved it dude i really did but you haven't mentioned the two big guys here marty and bob so just talk to me a little bit about marty's directing how great it was the scene of the fire david grant talked about and then how great is de niro my buddy scott spinelli said i think this is de niro's best film in decades he's diabolical i agree i think de niro is has been in recent years like people have been critical of like oh he's just kind of older now i thought this role was perfect for him i bought the right. whole thing i mean i think you know right away that he's like but if you've read the book like he's the right. so like you kind of know right away it's a little predictable his character but sure. it, it's just a great performance and marty i mean marty that's what i mean there's so many things where you're watching a shot or the way they're panning and then most of the, most movies I watch, I don't even notice directing. When you watch Marty direct, you're like, oh, this is an interesting way of entering this scene. This is a cool pan. You know what I mean? It's yeah. I think for someone like me, see, you probably watch every movie and you're like, that's something that they did there. Whereas yeah. in this movie, I was like, okay, that like you notice Marty's directing. Whereas most of the time I'm just watching a movie and I'm not even remembering that there is a director. Yeah, he famously told Roger Ebert once, he's like, I don't want you to just passively watch the movie. I'm going to tell you where to watch the movie. So that's where he takes that camera. Yeah. And as you panning, he's tracking, he's moving. It's a, a restless roaming camera. It's amazing. All right, Chris Cody in the books, Four Maple Leafs, Killers of the Flower Moon. So Thursday morning, I'm on the road. Uh, well, I traveled Wednesday, I flew into to Fort Worth. I'm here traveling for the World Series, been having an outstanding time. Couldn't have been luckier. Two warm weather cities. Like baseball does feel like, you know, Fenway Park, 52 degrees, but I've been there. I, I did the 2013 World Series, Red Sox, Cardinals, two great fan bases. If you want just a cool World Series, Texas and Arizona. It's 85 and sunny right now, not a cloud in the sky. It's fantastic. So I fly on Wednesday to Fort Worth. As people know in the area, Cody, there's Dallas and there's Fort Worth and there's Arlington. So we're Fort Worth. Fort Worth, a little more rednecky. Dallas is more cosmopolitan. Arlington is where the ballpark is. Wednesday, thunder showers. I'm like, I'll get a quesadilla. I'll watch the next game. All good. Next day, we did a couple things at the, the stadium. Not much. Harold said, you want to grab dinner? I'm like, yeah, sure. Me, him, LG Red. And uh, as the menu comes, I'm like, this place is very expensive. And so I'm like, I'll probably just get the salmon, you know, 40 bucks. And Harold's like, I'm buying. I go, great. I'll get the porterhouse. That's $89. <laughs> but he, he got himself, I swear, like a $200 steak. I'm like, oh, my God. Because he said it was like a Japanese-style Wagyu beef, something like that. Wow. He's like, yeah, 
Like, I like that stuff. I'm like, oh, my God. Now, they must have had a couple cows in the back because it took forever. And he's kind of like me. We like to just get rolling. Like, hey, can we just get the food to eat and get out of here? Bill's game on, but the TV's way in the back. So eventually the food comes. The part that you'll enjoy is this. Now that I know he's paying for it, I do have a sweet tooth, as you know. I, I, and I can tell he's not a dessert guy. He's very lean. He doesn't eat anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah steak sticks were good. I'm like, uh, she goes, dessert? My and he's like, no, no, no. I go, this is going to bend you. Yeah. And I'm like, this guy doesn't want dessert. She doesn't want dessert. Oh, he doesn't need anything. She's been drinking like a non-alcoholic beer. I'm like, no, I need to get dessert, guys. I can't, can't have a day without a sweet tooth. So I check, and I'm like, this seems like fair desserts. I go, what do you recommend? I'm uh, big on whatever. I like, okay, you tell me. You work here. So what's the thing people love the most? And she goes, the bread pudding is to die for. I go, and Harold goes, is it quick? It's like two minutes. She goes, oh, it's really quick. I'm like, yeah. at least 15 minutes. <laughs> like, it, And he's just fuming. He's like, this guy had to go. We take one bite. It's not worth the 15 minutes. Oh. Like, like, I'll, I'll take the sugar, vanilla ice cream with it. I'm like, all right, I'm like, let me just eat the ice cream. And I'm like, it was, it's not worth the 15 minutes. But very, very classy, my man, Harold. So Do I you tell the him. waitress that? No, he, he, he blatantly lied. At one point, I was like, you got to tell him. He's like, he goes, this was outstanding. I go, oh, so you're that guy. So you're just chirping her the whole time. <laughs> You'll never come here again. And he tell me, like, oh, this was outstanding. Harold Reynolds loved it. But it was very nice of him. My wife messages me that morning. is listen, I, I don't want to go to the Marty event. I go, what? She goes, overwhelmed right now the kids my sister-in-law thinks that they're helping she's a saint she's awesome but she goes i just i'm not feeling it. i go okay no problem thanks for letting me know at least i have 48 hours quickly text my buddy little boy who as i've talked about here on the podcast mlb network cameraman fellow cinephile we trade dvds all the time i could do a huge favor 400 dollars ticket you obviously not paying for a dime of it but i need you to go to this event i need you to record it for me he's like all right i got you I'm like yes he also works tbs on the weekends i'm like i know he's gonna be busy 14 hour college football saturdays 12 hour nfl sundays he's like i got it so the other thing was just ridiculous. Ticketmaster, the transfer. I'm like, why is this so difficult? He says, it's a transfer ticket. I'm like, give me your email. He's like, it's not showing up. I'm like, oh, my God. He's <laughs> like, I have, do you have a Ticketmaster account? He's like, yeah. But apparently it was in a different email. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, How hard is this in today's day? Here's my ticket. Just take the goddamn ticket. <laughs> he goes to the event. The next day, afterwards, he messaged me. And he's just like, one picture he got. I go, did you get video? He's like, no. He goes, I was about to get video. And Colbert was staring right at me. Because I go, the seats are so, he goes, don't look too close. He goes, dude, you're three rows back. And Colbert's just staring at me. So I'm like, okay, we definitely can't record. He goes, but put the phone in my pocket, record the whole thing. He's like, if you're Jones in here, like, obviously I'm Jones in here. And I can send it to me now. He said, do you have Dropbox? I'm like, yes. So I don't know if this is allowed. Apologies to the Montclair Film Festival. But Cody and I are going to play a snippet of the talk. Dan Stanzik, I texted and he goes, dude, you got to play some. I go, the audio is pretty low. It's recorded on a phone in a guy's pocket. And he said, well, maybe Cody can boost the audio. Jack it up. Yeah, he goes, because Cody can work some magic. So uh, we're going to present now a few clips from the talk, but it, it was fantastic. I mean, listen, the whole thing, hour and a half, as always, Marty, funny, entertaining, charming, and good questions by Colbert. I thought he he asked him some really good stuff about, you know, his favorite movie, what's the movie he's seen the most, and a couple of snippets here. So Cody and I went through a little bit of it. Here's a few clips. Enjoy. You are a, a, a quintessential New York figure. Yeah. And obviously the most important question they can ask you is very personal. And, and if you don't want to share this, I understand. Um, but, you know, it's the kind of interview where I am. But I have to ask you, what is the best slice of pizza? <laughs> <laughs> what is the best slice that, for you, it can also be a place that only sells full pies. But what, what's the Yeah, it usually sells uh, full pies. But, okay. Um, uh, we had our office uh, in the DGA building in New York for many years, and across the street is Angelo's. Uh, and it's there at 57th Street, right across from the DGA. It is delicious. And there's another place called Patsy's down the block, or around the but, but this Angelo's is something, I'm telling you, it was really quite something. It used to be 
Pizza Saturdays. We have go and look at a film on screening room and have pizza. Not in the room, of course. So in between, in between. What is it that's enduring about the way you work with De Niro? What is, it's got to be more than the shared history. We have this kind of strange trust. Uh, I think somehow we found that uh, we felt very similar about life and about um, the, our, our situation in life, really. Uh, yeah, I was saying at his 80th birthday party that we allowed ourselves about 60 seconds at Cannes at Eden Rock by the pool at night after the film a few months ago. We had some champagne and we leaned back and we looked and the pool was down there and the Hotel du Cap was very beautiful and there were spotlights up in the sky and the stars. And we looked and we leaned back and said, would you believe 50 years where we are? I said, no. What happened? How did this happen? We couldn't believe it. We said, let's just have a little sip. The thing about him is a very compassionate person. He's much more than anybody I know, really. And, and he, uh, he'll show up. If a person is sick, he'll just show up and he'll sit there. <laughs> but the, the, the sick person appreciates it. He doesn't tell you're going to get better. You're not going to get better. <laughs> I want to talk about some other actors for just, just a moment. I, I, Barbara Streisand has a, a, a biography, My Name is Barbara, coming out in early November. And I, I have read portions of it because I'm special. And, <laughs> and in the memoir, I read this part, she mentions that one of her greatest regrets was not being able to work with you. Yeah, we, we, we used to hang out together, it was great. Me and Spielberg, her, and uh, De Palma, they would play, we do uh, a trivia pursuit. Do you have actors that you, you wish you could have had the chance to collaborate with stars of earlier generations? Like, would you like Gregory Peck or oh, Jimmy Cagney? I tried with Peck. We had only one, one or two scenes with him in Cape Fear. Yeah. We tried to come up with a project, and I found I couldn't, I, I couldn't connect with him. Um, uh, but, I mean, one person that I thought was still stands up so beautifully is Barbara Stanwyck. You know? I mean, you see her stuff. From the earliest films, from The Miracle Woman and, and Babyface, to, you know, going up to Cattle Queen of Montana and Clash by Night, this crazy Fritz Lang film about Clifford Odets, this woman was, had a range and an eroticism, too, that was extraordinary. I fell in love with her, you know. She would have been something, Crime of Passion, uh, interesting film, but uh, she had depth and strength. Her version, that she, she plays Stella Dallas. Take a look at that. I mean, she was something. Um, you know, and I, the other one I liked a lot at the time was uh, Tracy, Spencer Tracy. Had a certain quality and warmth about him. Uh, one of his greatest roles is uh, that terrific film as uh, Judgment at Nuremberg, where he wants to know how this happened. You know, you just look at his face, it's extraordinary. Um, I got to know Marlon Brando a bit. Yeah, I wanted to. We always circled each other for something, but never came up, it didn't work out. You know. Did you get to hang with him? Yeah. Whatever oh, I like. Did he hang? Yeah, it was great. Did he talk? He talked. This guy knows everything. <laughs> he knew everything. 
everything. He's a genius. He knew everything. And he'll say, well, this flower comes from a new... Okay. <laughs> just a really good actor. He may be a really good actor. <laughs> I'm not kidding. No, I'm serious. <laughs> he may have been just jerking around. I'm telling you. Yeah. This guy was like amazing. You know, oh, he would have been something. You don't have to tell us what it is, but do you know what your next project is going to be? I am working on two things at once. Yeah, and two. Can you give us a hint? Well, I, one might be another film with uh, Leo DiCaprio. On the other hand... If we get it right, once we have the actor strike, we can't do anything. So it's like we're waiting, um, and I, it's getting tough. It's getting very tough because by the time he's he's got another film to do next year, uh, that means if I start shooting with him, it's at the end of next year. I'll be crawling towards that. The other, the other one is, is as a, a project that I like. I read this this books by Marilyn Robinson called at Home, and um, uh, there was Gilead and Home and Lila and Jack. And so I like to do home. And so we come up with the script. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's a different approach, different kind of film for me. But again, it has to do with, can a person change? Can a person be forgiven? It's like the, it's like the uh, story of the prodigal son, only 1960 in Ohio. Um, it's quite beautiful. She writes, she's a wonderful writer. And so I'm aiming towards that, is where we're going, you know. You know what I love about the story of the prodigal son? Is that the father sees him coming from afar. That's right. What does that mean? Yeah. The father's always there waiting, waiting to forgive. Waiting one day, one day. The father sees him coming from afar. And he forgives him. It's just yeah. beauty. You picture him every morning looking. Yep. Looking at him, he might come by. All right. Good stuff there from Marty once again as we continue the Killers the Flower Moon uh, conversation again. Three Marty. straight episodes. <laughs> yeah. I I, I went on uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts and they just check reviews. And like, there's always somebody mad about something. And the one I did laugh at, he was like, this was maybe six weeks ago. He's like, there's the new Martin Scorsese movie coming. I was like, oh my God, Adnan's going to talk about it every single episode. <laughs> yeah, like, what? Like why wouldn't I? Like, that, that's where I'm like, why would you be surprised? <laughs> but in fairness, how about this? Friday, Saturday was Games 1 and 2. Really enjoyed it. You've been to Dallas, Fort Worth, obviously. What do you think of the vibe? Because I'll tell you this. What I like about it is I do feel like I'm in a different world. I'm in Texas. I don't feel like I'm in America. Like, I'm in Texas. Like, you go there, and it's red, white, and blue, and it's a Texas flag, and then the American flag. Yeah. And it's, you know, uh, what's like, I like it. I love, love it. it. I, I want some oh. more of it. Yeah, Tim McGraw, a lot of George Strait, King of the Road. I'm like, yeah, here for a good time. Whatever the hell it is. I'm like, this. like I, I get the vibe. Cowboy boots, cowboy buckles. Like at one point, someone goes, you have to get a cowboy hat. I go, that's just too much for me. <laughs> I can't. Like I'm not saying I'm a city slicker here, Billy Crystal. But I can't. I can't physically put a cowboy hat on me to take a picture. But it's a different vibe, right? I'm more of an Austin guy, if I'm being honest. I've been to Austin a few times. That's a cool city. Um, I, I like Texas. I've been there. I've, I've, I've gone through. Like, I haven't stayed there for a week. But you're right. It's its own place. It's definitely its own place. And I'm with you. I would love to go to Austin. Because every time I go there, you know, I kind of let it slip. I'm not crazy about the politics. And I'm like, well, you know, Austin, you would like. It's much more liberal. Great music scene. Great movies. Actually, Richard Linklater, the filmmakers yeah. from I, uh when George Bush is going to throw the first pitch, I'm like, oh, my God. And, they, yeah, and these guys are all, like, oh, Bush, amazing. The, the, the pitch he threw. I'm like, that was, that was 2001. Okay? The sequel's been, never as, never yeah. as good. <laughs> oh, guaranteed he's going to bounce it. As soon as he bounced I'm like, yes, I called it. He bounced it. I'm like, still looking for weapons of mass destruction and still looking for the strike zone. Nice <laughs> W. But that is not. Uh, anyways, we fly in on Sunday. 
And shout out to my buddy, Cabby. So I said, I'm going to go see Killers of the Fire Moon a third time. He goes, what is wrong with you? He goes, think about the cinephile audience. Like, everybody knows you're the biggest Marty fan. Like, it's not even close. Help out the audience. Go see something else. You want to see new movies? I said, all right, fair enough. So I had one of the greatest days of my life on Sunday. 7 a.m. flight, which, again, I'm not crazy about flying. So how do you get over it? You stay up late and you take the first flight out. So I purposely stay up to, like, 2 a.m. I wake up at 4.30. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. Oh, I'm so anxious. Oh, I don't know where I am. I get in the plane. and MLB hooks us up, first class. Crack, crack open three milligrams melatonin just whatever it's gonna take okay fine wake me up when i'm there get there put my stuff away now i think you're gonna agree with me on this people always talk about the west was also great for nfl now i find it a little bit early yeah. to watch i'm like for your dolphins my eagles i'm like I, I find it a little early person i like the 1 p.m but whatever i was here put my stuff away i'm like all right and my boss who's great senior vp mark kaffa diehard jets fan he goes i've got a sports bar 15 minutes away meet me there i'm like all right I get there, it's like him, Tommy, a couple people. I'm like, all right. And I'm asking, I go, I got to get the Eagles game up. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm here in a spring. You got to hook me up here. I don't, <laughs> I don't want Jets, Giants, the Meadowlands. Like, I could, I, I, this is going to take years off my life. I'm like, I will buy chicken wings and whatever. I just need to watch the Eagles. So they're watching a horrible game. Uh, thankfully, their guys come through in overtime. A little dicey against commanders. We win. Horrible sled coming up for the Eagles. We're seven and one, but we've got freaking Cowboys, Chiefs, Bills, Niners, like, coming up. Cody's Dolphins come through as well strong. I check. How about these odds? I just check local movie theaters. The Holdovers, which is Paul Giamatti's new movie. As we all know, one of my favorite actors. Top five. Pacino, De Niro, Phil Seymour Hoffman, Paul Giamatti. Giamatti's movie is called The Holdovers. It's re-teaming with the director's sideways, Alexander Payne. who's one of my favorite filmmakers. The movie's coming out November 10th. I said, let me just check if it's around. One screening in, and I'm staying in Tempe, Arizona. In Tempe, 2 p.m. on a Sunday local time. I go, this is incredible. The movie's not opening until next Friday in New Jersey, and it's not opening anywhere else. So I look it up, I read some more, they go, apparently they did like a Claire was because on nationwide screenings, 2 p.m. on a Sunday, just to get a little buzz going. I go, this is unreal. Yeah. So I, I hop in an Uber, I go check out the holdovers. I'm going to save that review for next week because it's going to be in theaters November 10th, so closer to the time. Let me just simply say it's outstanding. Masterclass, Giamatti's acting. Had some milk duds. After that, I check the phone, I go, oh my God, I can pull this off. David Fincher's The Killer, which is on Netflix, which I'm about to review, playing on Netflix the week after, but in a different theater. Cody, this is unprecedented. I have pulled off double bills many a time. It's been a few years, but I've never pulled off a double bill at two different wow. movie theaters. I didn't take two different Ubers to get there. It was <laughs> unbelievable. I got four forty, like, and I'm like, now I got to eat. All right, medium popcorn. Let's go. So it was just a phenomenal. You didn't day. have to work that day. That was like the day before the game or something. Exactly. Travel uh -huh. day Sunday between games two oh, and yeah, games okay, three. Okay, yeah. It was, uh, as my friend Will Folger said, it was right on brand. Like, if you just say, what's Dan Plesak doing? Like, you would love the golf. These guys are up at 7 a.m. They're going golf, and they're just yeah. crushing it. Any of the park. Albert Pujols, I just saw him. He's got his, he's got his clubs. I'm like, all right, you guys are really focused on your golf. Okay. He's like, I knew. <laughs> Eagles game, two movies. I'm like, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty <laughs> I love so, that. Yeah, I definitely, I'm, I'm on brand, as they say. Let's talk quickly about The Killer before we get to our man, Nat. So, again, it's going to be on Netflix next Friday. And my boy, Cabby, said to me, because you don't really talk much about David Fincher. I'm like, listen, he's a great director. Seven is one of my favorite movies. Um, he's obviously somebody who's very accomplished. Adam Amin, huge fan of The Social Network. Uh, Zodiac, I think, is a really good movie. Obviously, The Serial Killer with Robert Downey Jr. I think he did something on Netflix fairly recently. I did not watch it. Some show was very expensive. Uh, I didn't watch it. I don't think it was picked up, mainly because of price. And then it got, whatever, lukewarm reviews. So I'm very excited to go see the movie. And I missed the first couple of minutes. It was always a little bit annoying, because I had to get that popcorn, because I was starving. But... It's this story about a killer 
And I give Fincher credit because I think he's trying to make something different, right? It's not going to be just your classic, you know, John Rambo here shooting up everybody. He's a killer, but he's perhaps having a moment, an awakening, so to speak, a spiritual reckoning. So the movie starts out, it's in voiceover. It almost sounds a little bit like, you know, I guess maybe it's just my Marty prison, but it's a little bit like De Niro, you know, Travis Bickle, Tax Gerald. He's talking about being a killer and he's setting up the shot as he's going to shoot this guy across the street in a high-rise building. So he's like, you know, the importance of being a killer is being calm, you know, no empathy, no sympathy, just focus on the task at hand. What's in it for me? Think about what you're all about. <laughs> I'm like, it's, it's, it's funny because it's, it's meant to be serious, but there's like some dark humor in it, which I really appreciate. And a couple of times the narration goes in that direction, which is a fine line when you're making a movie about a killer and yet it's kind of darkly funny. So I enjoyed the fact that it did include some humor. Anyways, I could already tell what's going to happen. The shot goes wrong. Essentially, he's focusing on a businessman. A hooker shows up. I'm like, nice. She starts dancing from whatever. Got the shot lined up. Shoots the hooker accidentally. Or stripper. Who knows what she is. The guy starts freaking out. He's like, oh, my God. The shot's gone wrong. So he gets out. Gets his stuff. Got to run to the airport. All right. He's got all these different IDs, different passports. He's going to Santa Domingo. I'm like, all right, interesting. Going to, they're going to the DR. He calls over his guys. He's like, yeah, the job went right. He's like, oh, my God. We got to fix this. How this happened? Okay, we'll figure it out. Cracks up the phone, whatever. So then he goes. And the lady that he's seeing has been beaten. I did not realize he's a Dominican girlfriend, but that's who he's going to see. She's been roughed up by some people. Apparently, obviously, he's killed. So they're trying to get revenge at him. So pretty straightforward revenge story. He screws up his shooting. They now roughed up his girlfriend. I mean, it's kind of like John Wick, right? John Wick, they beat up his dog. Here, they beat up a girl. He's going to go get revenge on these guys. But then the movie kind of goes in a, in a different avenue, which I will not spoil. Again, the Tyburn method. I'm giving you the first third. I'm not going to give you the second third. I'm not going to give you the final third. But I think for Fincher, it doesn't necessarily stand as one of his better films because it's not an advancement of his work. Like, Fincher is such an accomplished director that it's hard when you're comparing his work against himself. But I did not feel like while watching this movie, this was going to be one of his better films or this advanced his character. It particularly, I just found it meandering at times with regards to the storyline. Having said that, Michael Fassbender is a phenomenal actor. I'll watch him in anything. Love shame. Story of a sex addict. He's unbelievable in that movie. And he's just, I mean, my wife loves him too. He's in great shape. Gets his shirt off at one point. So ladies, you'll enjoy that. But he has a face that's just so rigid. And um He's just so cold and so calculating. Like, it's always odd when Michael Fassbender smiles. Like, I've seen him on talk shows and stuff. When he smiles, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, he seems like a nice guy. But, like, in movies, he's just a dark, very fixated character on the task at hand, very obsessive. But he's he's riveting to watch, and especially him. You, it's not hard to imagine he's a cold-blooded killer because he's that good an actor. But as far as the storyline for me, I thought it was lacking a little bit. And, again, I will not ruin anything except to say that the ending was anticlimactic, specifically. So it's on Netflix November 10th. If you want to go see the movie theater, you can do it like me and check out David Fincher's list from The Killer. I'll give it three minute beliefs. More importantly, Giamatti's The Holdovers. I'll do next week, which is unbelievable. Now it's time for Nat Segaloff. Say hello to my little friend. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What a pleasure to bring back to Cinephile our buddy Nat Segaloff. Say hello to my little friend, A Century of Scarface, a terrific book which I read, which is now available. As I said to Nat before, I don't like having him on because he's one of the few guests who's a better voice than me and a better <laughs> setup than me. But Nat, good to see you again, man. Congrats on a terrific book. Okay, thank you so much. And here we go, Nat. <laughs> so I, I love the book. I, I flew through it. And what I think is great about it is that you talk not only about the film that most people would know it's the De Palma book, but of course the original book, which is the, the Paul Muni version and how inspired Pacino was by Howard Hawks's version. So he sees the Paul Muni version of Scarface says, I want to do that one day. He's got enough juice. He's got enough power, ends up getting done. But I want to start with a spot which you may not have expected, which is his accent. You've got great stuff in the book about the dialect coach and Stephen Bauer, how he was helpful with some of the Cubanism. So let's start there. Al's accent. Where did he get that kind of voice and that kind of face? Well, a lot of it, of course, came from Stephen's coaching, and some came from the voice coach he had, uh, who was very, very famous here for speaking every dialect, even though he never really appeared in many movies. But Bauer was part of it because Bauer is is Cuban, part mostly Cuban, part German, and uh, they worked on it. But they also kind of did a caricature. the The downturn of the mouth I asked Stephen about yeah. because. Everybody makes fun of it now, and, and and I guess until Leonardo DiCaprio in the new Scorsese film, right? No one He's turns a mouthing jaw. Right. Absolutely, yeah. It's just something he said that happened with the character and with the words. This is the way it felt better for Pacino to speak them, and he contorted his mouth to make that work. You know, Alec Guinness needed his walk, Lawrence Olivier needed his nose, and I guess Al Pacino needed his mouth. Yeah, the stuff with Bauer is really cool, and I, he writes the forward to the book, and he seems really genuine and really warm-hearted towards Al. Like he said, the fact they spent a lot of time together kind of developing their own backstory. Even if it's not the movie, it was important to develop their camaraderie in, within the story. They're both actors. And in fact, while Pacino had a beach house in Malibu and and uh, and Stephen Bauer didn't, um, <laughs> Bauer used to go over and hang out with Pacino for a month or so before they even started rehearsals. And they got to know each other's characters and each other as people. And as Stephen says in his wonderful forward, and thank you, he really yeah. is a good, good man for doing that. He mm-hmm. said, I taught Pacino how to be Cuban, and Al taught me how to be an actor. The great lines. Very generous of him. Oliver Stone's script, um, whenever I've seen Al talk about it, he always, you know, he, he's very generous towards De Palma and says he loves his operatic vision and Stephen Bauer. But he always says, listen, it, it's an Oliver Stone script because like, it, he has to get credit for this. Does he get credit for all the one-liners, Nat? Were some of those ad-libbed? Specifically, say hello to my little friend, which is the title of your book. I asked Oliver about that, and, you know, in the fog of war, you really don't know who says what. But the shooting script that I was able to obtain does not have that line in it, Mm. but there are some lines that are close to it, and and that actually is – it had a few more syllables and and, uh, uh, beats than say hello to my little friend, and it went into the script at one point. I don't have the – what is what's called the the uh, lined script, the continuity script. But, you know, things happen. In fact, as you probably know from reading the book – while Al was doing some shooting with one of the guns, although the rounds weren't real, the third degree burns, 
the exactly he, he grabbed the barrel of the gun by mistake and burned his hand terribly and so until he recuperated they had to shut down everything and and that's why the ending is so operatically violent De Palma was shooting everything he could because they couldn't literally shoot Al Pacino and in fact he says even Steven Spielberg came in for a visit one day and Spielberg did a couple of shots in the yeah. big shootout sequence at the end what the hell if you got squibs if you've got special <laughs> effects people and stunt people you know keep on going until your star shows up honey keep things going until I'm back no, and, and you're right. The Spielberg hook is hysterical, like him and Scorsese and, uh, you know, uh, the, that group of guys were all friends together. George Lucas, obviously. So the idea yeah. of Spielberg just showing up like, hey, Steve, you want to kill some guys today? Sure. Yeah, why yeah, not? Yeah. Well, you know, John Ford would do that, too. He showed up once to visit Ward Bond on the TV series Wagon Train and, you know, did a couple of shots. He helped John Wayne shoot the Alamo. I mean, <laughs> this is the sort of camaraderie you have. And nobody cares about, you know, who's who's getting paid or who's not getting paid. You simply do it for your friends. Yeah. Um, let's get to De Palma, grandiose vision, operatic. And I think you really explained it well in the book. And I just forget for those. I want them to all read the book, but you can kind of explain to it. Why is he so polarizing? You'll get some people will say, man, like Tarantino's like De Palma's a genius. And then you some of them go, ah, he's so derivative. He's just ripping off Hitchcock. Why is De Palma one of those guys that people seem to love him or hate him? There are two strikes, I think, that De Palma has against him. One is they say he rips off Hitchcock, which is not the case. Mm -hmm. Hitchcock developed a vocabulary of cinema, specifically the cinema of suspense. And it's like criticizing Hemingway because he used the English language. The vocabulary is there and you use the words that are appropriate. The other thing that Brian gets slammed for, and I can sort of see this, but not really, is his treatment of women in his films. I mean, he also had a couple of divorces, so let's not stop at the movies. But... (laughs) If you look at the female performances throughout his films, even going back to Joe Clayburgh when he was making films with his Sarah Lawrence crew, yeah. the performances of the women in his films are extraordinary. He gives them a lot of leeway. He creates characters. He works with the actresses. And yet, because of the kind of films he makes, which involve violence and suspense, women are, by definition, the victims. It doesn't work if you have a man as the victim. And I, I point out Robert Benton's film, still of the night as an example which nobody has seen roy Mm. scheider is menaced by meryl streep it's one of both of their early films and the Mm. film didn't work for a number of reasons because this is the man who just killed jaws how could he be a victim (laughs) and so you sometimes have to make women as the victim it's wrong of course in real life and it's kind of a go-to place in film and this is my screed but if you go to mcdonald's you got to expect a hamburger yeah no, I'm with you. Do you have a top five De Palma off the top of your head? I would go Scarface, Untouchables, Carlito's Way, Dressed to Kill, Carrie, something in that five. Although, I, I, by the way, I have to mention that I love Hi, Mom. Like De Niro is so funny in that movie. <laughs> the B Black Baby sequence is hysterical. Oh, go. God. We're, we're talking Brian's early films, and I think some of them he may even have posted on YouTube. The yeah. early stuff was very political and, of course, very weirdly funny. And people forget what a really terrific comedy director brian de palma was i would also add by the way obsession and i would certainly add blowout to those lists but i mean you know he he always comes to the plate with whatever he can have the later films that he's made and they were uh, under a certain amount of difficulty because he lost his his mojo shall we say in terms of hollywood Mm -hmm. his films are highly political even if they don't actually say it and i don't mean just casualties of war hi mom and greetings i mean the things he's done with the middle eastern war which not many people have seen he's a very political director but that isn't what people think of him as being and i'm talking too fast no, no, I love what you're talking. High energy. I love it. That saying a lot. The book is called Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface. You're right with De Palma redacted. And I love that you mentioned casualties of war. I mean, there, there's 
there's that great sequence at the end where uh, Michael J. Fox is basically trying to take Sean Penn to court and he's just getting ripped by it. Is it Dale Dye or Dick Dye, who's a former military guy himself? And he's basically telling Dale like, Dye, yeah. Yeah. And he's just yeah. basically telling like, shut your pie hole. Like nobody cares. Okay. Shit happens in the jungle. It's the way De Palma directs, it's great. You get this, you know, kind of he's, he loves these odd angles, right? Which is kind of Hitchcock. And Michael J. Fox just getting torn out. But I, I'm with you. Casualties of War has some, yeah. has some very, very powerful scenes. David Rape script. I'm oh, glad yeah, you mentioned yeah. political because I, I love Lamet, and I'm glad you mentioned it in the book that, of course, Sidney and Al were tight because of Serpico and Dog the Afternoon, and originally he was going to do Scarface, and Lamet has to get credit because he said, let's make him Cuban. There's this wave of Cubans coming in right now, but where things went awry was he wanted to make it a little too political, and Pacino himself kind of balked at that story angle, if you can give some color on that. Well, Sidney Lumet is a very was rather a very political man because living in New York, he kind of have to be in many of his films, you know, Q&A, even 12 Angry Men, which started him off. They're all political in one nature because that's what his kind of agitprop cinema was. And he wanted to make Scarface more political. And yes, he did give the idea to set it in uh, the Cuban community, the Miami Cuban community with the onslaught of cocaine in the early 1980s. Uh, but that was a little bit too much for him. And so he was able to. Let's say they transitioned out and he did um, Prince of the City. Now, what's interesting about that is Brian De Palma was developing Prince of the City. And it was he's contended that Sidney Lumet stole Prince of the City from him. Lumet later wrote the screenplay um, for for that film. And it, it created, I guess, a certain amount of tension between them. They're both very strong New York directors. And I don't want to get into the middle of a pissing contest. I established it in the book. Both <laughs> films turned out pretty good. Yeah, uh, but it was a, a source of tension, shall we say? I'm glad you mentioned Q and A, man. Nick Nolte's great in that movie. I mean, it's that's well, another Lumet, I mean, movie. Lumet, uh, you know, the guy. I'm having a, a discussion with a friend of mine who doesn't like Lumet very much, but I'm saying if you look at Twelve Angry Men, and yeah. then you look at one of his later films, which is called Find Me Guilty with Vin Diesel. Oh yeah, film, yeah. The film doesn't really work, but you're talking about a courtroom drama, and Lumet never uses the same shot twice. He keeps both of those films active, and maybe it comes from his television experience where you had to shoot a film, uh, shoot a TV show in a broom closet, but yeah. he really does keep them active and keep the actors going to the point where you don't realize you're in a confined space, and that, I think, is Lumet's greatest achievement. Uh, Long Day's Journey Into Night, it's essentially a one-set piece. He knows acting, and he knows how to move them within a frame. Uh, I... He was also a pretty nice guy, so yes. we have to remember that. Well, he's got the great book, Making Movies, which oh. Roger Ebert said, if you read one book about movie making, read this one. And actors loved him, as you know, because he was so generous and very respectful of writers. He was very respectful of the script. Find me guilty. It's funny you mentioned I didn't. I didn't like it either. Roger Ebert's like one of the few people alive who likes it. I think he gave it three stars. And, of course, mm -hmm. Roger's now past this, but I couldn't believe he actually liked it. But uh, I thought you were going to say Later Lament, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. I think that's Oh, great, my God. That's a I, great late Sidney Lament movie. It is. I, I wrote about that in an old book I wrote 10 years ago. I'm always writing books. This one is called Final <laughs> Cuts, the last yeah. films of 50 great directors. And the privilege of going through his notes and to see how he put that film together was just remarkable. He didn't he didn't drop a stitch. Some films yeah. didn't work, but he made them because he thought they would work. He, yeah. he wasn't just doing it for a payday. Totally. That's well said. Michelle Pfeiffer, Al Pacino. Um, obviously, it, it, I think they've got great chemistry on screen, even when she hates him and he hates her. That whole say goodnight to the bad guy speech is great. Uh, Al was once asked, and I think it was when he was promoting the Irishman, they said, best kisser you've ever had on screen. He kind of laughed. He said, well, I'll go with Michelle because I had Scarface with her. I did Frankie and Johnny as well. What was their relationship like on set during Scarface? 
I don't really know, I'm afraid, because neither one was going to talk to me for the book. Michelle was unavailable, as they say. And it's also kind of a sore point with her. Mm -hmm. uh, not the film, but the way the film was treated. You know, mm -hmm. I say in the introduction, because I did interview her a couple of different times for different films. And one of them was for Lady Hawk, which is not a film that I think showed anybody very well. But mm -hmm. as I was leaving the room, I, I said, by the way, I'd like to talk about Scarface. And she got suddenly defensive and almost in tears. She said, we worked very hard on that film. And why did people treat it like that? And yeah. I tried to tell her, I wanted the people who liked it. <laughs> because a lot of people didn't when it came out. And she had no need to be defensive because what she did with that role, unlike what was done in the Paul Muni version, but she made the role of Scarface's girlfriend, wife, her own. And she doesn't just disappear at the end of it. She puts her foot down and and walks out on him, which is a remarkable thing to do in any film, especially for somebody leaving Al Pacino. Mm. Uh, and I, I imagine her character, I hope, rehabilitated herself after she left the uh, the story, but we'll never know. Yeah, and I think she's been frustrated, too. Like, so often the movie gets discussed and people are praised with it, and what they focus on her is how skinny she is. And yes, she is anemic in the movie. That's character, but it's like, no, but she's also a great actress beyond the fact she's willing to, to change her body for the role. So you're right. It's always a little bit tricky with discussing with her, I'm sure. You mentioned the fact most of the critics hated it. Why? It's a classic now. Now, why didn't they get it? It was an era when not many people used the F word and the violence was without question over the top. We're talking about 1983. Uh, yes, Sam Peckinpah's made his movies. Yes, Arthur Penn had made Bonnie and Clyde. But this was indeed operatic. And it put some people off the language, the length, everything just kind of worked against it. And it's uh, interesting how the, the film company, Universal, tried to attract an audience. They tried to screen it. It wasn't a flop. It maybe broke even, but it didn't really attract a lot of attention from the critics in a positive way. And, and that was because, and they didn't know this for another 10 or 15 years, the audience that they pitched the film to wasn't the audience that appreciated it. The audience yeah. that truly appreciated Scarface was the hip-hop community, which is a code word of saying African-Americans and people of color. And yeah. what I find really interesting there is, I don't think there's any black people in the movie. And yeah. yet, that community has embraced it as perhaps articulating their yearnings or understanding what it's like to be discriminated against. I, I can say that about any number of minority groups, but that's the group that really, really gave attention to it. And Bill Stephanie, who's one of the founders of Public Enemy, gives me a wonderful interview where he yeah. talks about this kind of politics and when the people saw it and when you went to, went to movie theaters when the audience was louder than the movie. That's the kind of thing that Scarface aroused and why it was so popular. But the critics, except for a few of them, like David Anson, who gave it a positive review and speaks with me for the book, talks about why that disconnect possibly happened. Well, I want to circle back to that remake, uh, potentially of Scarface, which would have been a hip-hop remake, which De Palma turned down. But so budget-wise, gross-wise, whatever the numbers were, like you said, it probably broke even. Can you quantify what it made as far as VHS DVD sales? Like, is, is somebody profiting off of this? You're asking for truth in Hollywood bookkeeping? <laughs> I'm sure Universal's made out pretty well by that. You know, they're... they're, they're yeah, this is horrible. This is the old joke. When we had the earthquake here in, in 1994, um, the, the joke going around was, well, it was it was an 8.4 earthquake, but Universal Pictures Accounting said it was only a 5.3. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. But I'm, I'm sure the film has paid its money back by now and gone over the top. And as for yeah. De Palma turning down a hip-hop version, 
he appreciated Giorgio Moroder's score. And I think right. everybody who's seen the film has appreciated it. And he didn't want to tarnish the whole unity of his film by changing the music. But Universal was famous for that. I remember they when they uh, got a hold of Peter Bogdanovich's film Mask, it was all full of, of various songs that the character, who was based on a real-life person, liked. And Universal wanted to take out. In fact, they did take the music out. They put in Bob Seger or somebody. And yeah. Bogdanovich was very upset about that. But it, it all goes down to clearing the music rights and clearing the reuse rights. It's it's all part of ancillaries. It has nothing to do with the integrity of the film and everything to do with the integrity of the bottom line. Yeah, it definitely would have been a different version. I mean, Jay-Z's favorite uh, movie is Scarface. There's a rapper named Scarface. If that, that music had been in there, it would have been different. But I, I understand, totally respect to Palma's decision. I go, no, I've got Marauder's score for a reason. A couple more for you. Does Tony Montana actually have sexual desires for his sister? Yeah. Wouldn't you? <laughs> No, sorry. Um, <laughs> the well, very he, beautiful Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Well, I he first, yes. I mean, she's uh, quite alluring, and I think she kind of plays with that. Certainly at the end, I don't think she's misinterpreting. And here's major spoilers: when she comes to him during the embattlement of the uh, in the last couple of scenes, right? Uh, I, you know, he probably has a, a theoretical desire for her because they hadn't seen each other for a long time uh, mm. due to his being involved in other things like becoming a drug kingpin and then when they reunited she's blossomed and i'm sure he had a disconnect for this geeky kid back it was 14 years old now she's 21 yeah and certainly i uh, they were discreet enough not to really say it until the language at the end and of course in the original paul muni film he really does have a lust for his sister and it's it's sort of unnatural but the the hayes office the censorship office tried to come down on that back in 1932. Yeah, I just think it's I, at first I was like, you know, he's so high as a kite. That scene is so funny. He's, you know, cocaine all over his nose. <laughs> Instead of a Fellini film, he looks like a clown. And the, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the, 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 that's interesting. He's either over the top or he's doing Bambi. I'm not really sure. It's <laughs> that's the one moment in which you say, what is going on here? But you have to go with it. I mean, you really have to go with it sort of. And, and he's committed and, yeah. as an actor. But Gina was committed to it. And that's what carries the scene off. It's tough to imagine improving Scarface, but there's been talk of remakes over time. I know the recent one was the Coen brothers are going to write a script and Luca Guadagnino would direct it. Thought about doing something about uh, Mexican immigration in Los Angeles. What do you think about remakes? You like it? Don't like it? Well, if they do it right, I mean, Scarface 1983 is a remake, remake yeah. but there's one problem with that, and that is something I uncovered in doing the paperwork for the book. The original novel by Armitage Trail is in public domain, so anybody can make Scarface. As long as they don't use the characters from either film, uh, the characters as as adapted for the movie, they can still make the actual characters from the book. Now, I wouldn't advise that because you'd have to find a new way of doing it. The original was set in the Prohibition era where the bad stuff was illegal booze. The remake was, of course, during the drug era when the bad stuff was powdered cocaine, not crack, incidentally. So I guess yeah. it could be redone today if you could find something else. But what? Opioids? It's, you know, people go to sleep. That's not a very interesting third act. Yeah. Uh, you make a really compelling case in the book that Pacino's greatest hour is Scarface. Right? I don't know how you phrase it. Maybe that's the film he'll be most known for. Because I mean, like I said, well, I think it's The Godfather. But to your point, if 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 I just took 100 people and said Al Pacino is the first movie they're saying The Godfather or is it Scarface? Like the other ones, I would say Serpico and Dog Afternoon. And I love Glengarry Glenn Ross. But but make the case why Scarface is, is Al's finest hour. Well, it's kind of hard, but I think in the totality of the thing, he's the one who got the film made as opposed to just signing on to something. So in a sense, he's the godfather of Scarface <laughs> with his, his, his partner, Martin Bregman. But it's just that he's so 
absorbing. He absorbs everything. But I, I'd hate to have Al Pacino live or die by one film. I yeah. think the worst thing we have in our industry is IMDb that gives somebody's <laughs> name and then in the middle puts the film for which they're best known. And it's yeah. probably Scarface for Al Pacino, even though he's done maybe 20 other portrayals. The yeah. one that nobody's seen, and you know, these obscure ones are always the one that film geeks like me find. Panic in Neil Park, Scarecrow? Yeah, uh, but the one that nobody's seen that I think is remarkable is he did a version of The Merchant of Venice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His Shylock is great. I will have I, the bond. <laughs> I never understood that character. And I saw Olivier do it on screen until yeah. Pacino did it. It's one of these underseen but not underrated performances but oh, yeah. you know he's he's been to the plate so many times Pacino can do anything he wants he's in his 80s now and he's still doing films and getting them together for his own company yeah he's still prolific it's amazing you always wonder too in actors you know what it's like you've interviewed so many actors they don't want to choose anything because it's like picking between children but when he's put on the spot you know they say you know favorite movies he's like well everyone knows the godfather made my career of course i'm always indebted to francis and he goes scarface is the most quoted everywhere i go someone says it and he's very fond of serpico he said i thought you know i don't i don't watch movies often but i see i go that one was pretty good mm. and then it's whatever the movie he's promoting that's what i've noticed he'll, he'll know those three and then oh i think yeah. the humbling's my best film my new film with barry <laughs> levinson go check it out <laughs> <laughs> I know. I I interviewed an actor once who'd done two films in a row, so I got to interview him two times in a row. And the, the first film was just, I mean, piss awful. And we all pretended it was, you know, because you when you write the feature story, you have to at least be positive. And then when it came to the <laughs> second film, uh, I said, you know, that that movie you made before wasn't very good. He says, uh, oh, well, you see, we were kind of honor bound not to trash the movie we've just made. Um, we have to say it's the best film ever made. I said, so what do you think of this film you just made? He said, I think it's the best film ever made. <laughs> and of course, it was Mared 2. <laughs> and, that's um, why I, and that's why I fell in love with John Cryer. Oh, yeah. John Cryer. Two right, and man. Friends. Sense of humor. When he was making movies, though, some of them were not two and a half, man. They were, no. two, and a half, they were two and a half stars. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's being generous. Uh, it's always fun talking with Nat Segaloff. Make sure you get his book. It's called Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface. Again, I'm focusing on the 1983 movie, but if you're a film historian, you love the original Scarface, Nat's got a lot of great stuff in there. As he said, the Hayes Production Code, Howard Hawks, Paul Muni, really good stuff, dovetailing it all together, and, and really, really rich stories. De Palma, Stone, Pacino, Stephen Bauer, the whole crew. It's an epic film and it's a terrific book. So thanks so much, Nat. I appreciate you. Thanks, Adnan. Good being here again. Again, like I said, I don't like to have a guy who has a better voice than me, but Nat Segloff, total pro. Cody, tell us what he said to you before. And he asked you how long the interview was going to be. He wanted to time his answer. He's great. He's like, oh, how long are we going? 15 minutes. Okay, I'll tighten it up. He's just... The chef's kiss, professionalism, energy, voice. Yeah, you're right. He is the chef's kiss, professionalism, energy, voice. Nat Segaloff, check it all off. Uh, go check out, say hello to my uh, little friend. This is new book, 40 Years of Scarface. Thanks as always for supporting Cinephile. Thanks for supporting me and Chris Cody. I should be uh, back on the road, or back home, I should say, in New Jersey, depending on how this World Series goes. I don't know if me and Sam's are going to kick off a little movie love this week or movie fighting, as I should say, but we'll figure it out. Anyways, happy Halloween. We didn't do it with scary movies. It's the same thing every time. The Exorcist, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> go ahead. Great. I hope Chris enjoys uh, trick-or-treating with his daughter. I'll enjoy 80 and sunny here in Arizona. Enjoy the World Series, and I'll see you at the movies.